Studios show The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and I am joined by my co-hostess with the mostess, also Aaron. Hi, hello, and howdy. Good to see you this morning. Looking beautiful as always, somehow, at this early hour. I slept in this. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, I bet. Thanks, (laughs) thanks. I pulled my hair back. No, legitimately, I did sleep in it. This is literally my nightshirt (laughs) underneath the sunshirt. Oh, look at that. That's awesome. It's It's a Sunday. It, 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 you know, the, the flowery outline kind of design is oh, yeah. kind of elvish in a way, maybe. Oh, yeah. So uh, as as per the last chat, I'm going to try to wear a different movie-themed sweatshirt each uh-huh. week. I can't remember how many I have, so I don't know if I'll be, be, be able to make it the full run until October 14th. But So we've done Hocus Pocus, we had The Mummy, and then this one is, of course, Pride and Prejudice, yep. most beautiful, ardently. Beautiful shirt, yeah. or sweatshirt. I know, I thought it was going to, it feels very elvish, like Tolkien-y with like a hob, almost like a hobbit door of roses. Yeah, definitely. I'm just wearing my Washington Huskies in celebration. That one counts, you know, too. Got to celebrate the uh, top 25 exactly. victory. Anyway, you guys listening and watching are not here for sports, for sure. So let's get into this. All right, episode four. We are moving along. Initial thoughts. How did you react to this one overall? Did you you like in where we're going still? Yeah, this one was the meteor episode, which, you know, it's it's expected given that, you know, we're four episodes in. We've essentially met all the key players, at least as far as we know at this point. So I can tell that now we're in that middle of the season. So they're going to have to break each episode up into not tracking every single storyline for every episode. Like there's just there's just no way. We would only get snippets of things if that was the case, which I don't think any of us want. We want to feel fully invested in these storylines. Um so like I was there were things I was sad, you know, like no Harfoots this episode and everything like that, but like overall we got a lot of juice and there's a lot of stuff to go over and there's a lot of potential questions that have been answered, which have then of course led to more questions, which is a good thing. Like you want a show that bleeds that thread through. But overall, I like this episode, I was kind of ambivalent toward like, I felt like we got some good stuff out of it. But like, I wasn't like overly wowed like I was with previous episodes. So and it could have been just like, from an aesthetic perspective, there wasn't as much going in this episode. I have a feeling that the next episode is going to make up for that because of how this episode ended. Like there's no way that they couldn't, you know, yeah. next step journey <laughs> the, the following episode where they're going yes <laughs> uh, yeah and so um i'm excited I, I i'm still excited to see where the season goes um i'll be honest like i feel invested but in a low stakes way if that makes sense like there's been no character where i'm literally like if anything happens to them i will riot until dawn like i i'm invested because i love this world and i love this universe and like i will always you know take an excuse to go back into it um, but so far, like the show in and of itself, like watching it week over week, I'm perfectly fine with like, if I miss a Friday, I'm fine with picking it up on a Saturday. I don't feel like, you know, the world has ended because I've missed one episode. Um, so like four episodes in, I like the show. I'm enjoying it. And like I'm excited to see where it goes. Excellent. Yeah, definitely. I feel mostly the same way. I mean, I'm still extremely dedicated about watching it the moment it releases on Thursday nights here on the West coast, just because of excitement level for myself, but it's not something where I would hurt 
myself. Oh, that is a t- terrible way to put it. I wouldn't change. Not, not, not the best. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like deprioritize something in my life that is truly important to make sure that I saw it on a Thursday night. And and I would. I think that the point that you are making there is, in a way, like when we watched original episodes of Game of Thrones. Part of this for me is that it's not turning into the event that game of thrones was from a public discourse perspective and i think which i like i like it too like i it feels (laughs) like it's taken so much pressure off of it more than anything else is that like honestly like the reviews it's getting are really strong like aside from the people that haven't actually watched the show that are like you know tolkien hate like they're you know it's not Tolkien, so it's not real i'm you know i'm just gonna tank the reviews for the most part the reviews are decently solid like don't get me wrong. The script has problems. Like, you know, there are things that we would change. You know, we've talked about CGI and unnecessary slow-mos. Like there's always going to be things, but like overall the show is a low stakes show that I can feel invested in without feeling like I had to halt my life around Mm -hmm. it. Because if I don't within 24 hours, the entire Twitter sphere or Facebook is going to be lit up with not only spoilers, but everybody's opinion and memes that I don't understand. And I'm just like, I feel like everybody's just collectively like, it's okay for this show to just be okay, and I'm happy with that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think, you know, part of that is also just it's not the same kind. It's not shock value. And I, and I, I don't say that in a negative way. We love Game of Thrones for what Game of Thrones is. It's very different. I think that's what's great is they can coexist. We've talked about that. But that's not this show. It's not about like, oh, my gosh can you believe this person died this episode out of all of a sudden? Like we're, we're can you believe that half the cast is now? Yeah. Dead? We're on a long journey of deep, deep world building and character depth and a journey that is largely idealistic and, and hopeful and positive in the end. And we know that like, we know it's going to end positive for. Yeah. And I, th- I yeah. think that's the other thing is like we said before, like we already know where it's it's going to go. So there's also that added like lack of pressure where we don't think the writers are going to pull a Game of Thrones where all of a sudden the, the books aren't written. So they're just like, hey, what if we just kill everyone and then not care what people think? Yep. Like it's just, we, we already know where this story has to end because it's where everything else picks back up. Yep. And like you said, like Tolkien and George R. R. Martin are two very, very different writers. Tolkien is literally all about hope, about light in the darkness, about like finding your people and knowing that like in the end, like everybody's seen hard times. Like, but what you do after is what makes like you who you mm-hmm. are. And George R. R. Martin is very much not that writer. No, no, definitely not. But I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I love where we're headed and I was very glad to get to see my dwarves again. Yeah, so super excited yeah <laughs> anytime we get to spin there is a joy especially the uh, thought that we're maybe we're leaving there now already for a little while but i'm sure we'll be back okay well let's go into our different storylines that we did cover you mentioned no harfoots and stranger i think that's the only real storyline that wasn't touched on in this episode i think everything else was was pretty much covered oh uh, and did we get i can't remember did we get any like real grit from Caleb I know we saw well, Caleb like yeah. there was a moment but we didn't really get anything further within that storyline yet no we just learned that that the construction is there's a handshake agreement is happening yeah. it's like we saw it off in the background you know there was some building taking place like it has been yeah, started that was it. but that was yeah. about it but Numenor so we start with Numenor for sure if I remember right we ended with Numenor so we're all kind of building towards as we've talked about like 
what's going to happen with Numenor's involvement in the potential war on Sauron, who is coming? And how are they going to handle that? Are they going to join the elves? Galadriel and Muriel are debating that. We actually get, we, I think the episode opened, if I remember right, with that naming ceremony with Muriel where there there's like babies. Yeah. It's like a dedication moment. And then it, you know, ends with the great wave that eventually is going to sink the island of Numenor. A la, Spoilers if you didn't know. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, true. I mean, we've talked about it, I think, on there before, but it's essentially like a, a God flooding the earth kind of moment only it only happens to Numenor. <laughs> a, no, a, a Noah's Ark meets Atlantis yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh and so she has a vision of this, right? Which we, you know, knew already she is of the Palantir family. She has a Palantir. They've alluded to it oh, existing. So, yeah, I was like they have like we got confirmation of those things this episode, but we didn't really know that before, True. like definitively, cuz nobody ever says their last name or anything like that. Like we we knew of it, like we had hypothesized why she was being like super cagey and weird, but we got confirmation of that this episode and like we see everything with her dad, which, you know, totally understand that she's, you know, like please like don't take this away, like we don't really have much else. This is why I'm so like not nice. I apologize. <laughs> um, but like, then we actually see like where the vision came from. And we see even just the impact of that on Galadriel, which I think is really important because I actually, and I know I said it, I think I said it in the last episode too, like when we talked about it, like I wanted more humanizing moments of Galadriel. And I think we got a lot of that in this episode is I think we got some of those, those softer edges without making her feel like an entirely different person. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she has an interesting journey in this episode because she starts off by, you know, having this conversation with Muriel and they're debating about whether or not the humans will come and fight with the elves. And she's trying to negotiate getting Halbrand out of jail because he's not just a brawler, he's a king. And, and you know, Muriel's like, no, <laughs> sorry. And of course, Galadriel turns into like, just she just gets she pops off like she pops off and she's like it's it's kind of one of those i love how the showrunners are framing these scenes because we will pull out and we will get galadriel in frame and they take it's almost like a baby version of what we got from kate blanchett when galadriel goes into like rage mode you will have a queen yeah it's nowhere near that but it's like it's it's almost like a a precursor to that where you you get the slight zoom and you can feel the the energy and the power raging in her and she's like no i am the lady galadriel and you will listen to me and then we get like a hard cut boom and it's a jail cell closing <laughs> and she's and you're like it's it's one of those like womp, womp, it womp. very much is it very much is and it, it, it kind of puts her in her place right um a little bit like i think eventually that's going to be part of her character arc is where we get to see her consistently try to fight this system and fight the fight in the way that she thinks she has power over everyone or that they should listen to her. And she's going to have to learn clearly the hard way. Yeah. Her, like she's, she's fighting like an elf and nothing else. She's not fighting diplomatically. She's not playing chess. Like she's playing a completely different game. Yeah. She reminds me of Facebook conversations. <laughs> and debates honestly you know what i mean like how a, pointless uh, yeah well but a lot of them devolve into just people saying no you need to understand my position it's this yeah. and this is what you will do and what you should think and 
the only reaction people have to that is 99% of the time it's I'm putting you in jail. Like, you know, I'm not going to have a conversation. There's no actual discourse that can come from that. And, and that's what well, we see. Because at that point you're talking to a wall or a wall is talking at you. Like you're not conversing with me. You're talking at me. And those are two very different things. And I think that Galadriel, and I do think that like, there's an overarching theme, especially in these stories, but you also do see it in Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit of this. I, I don't like it's, it's this, it's not, it's not arrogance is the right word. Like it's not the right word, but there is an inherent like hoity toitiness to elves. I think it's arrogance. Where they, <laughs> I think it's arrogance. It's, but, but like, but like even in Legolas, you get it. And Legolas obviously is not an insanely arrogant character. Obviously you get it in Thranduil because he's, you know, um i can i literally can't fault him like there's nothing wrong with him at all period the most perfect human being in existence but like there is an inherent arrogance that despite having lived amongst humans they still have not seemed to grasp and what i find so interesting is that like we all focus on how elves live like these insanely long lives and how like they've seen shade the different shades of middle earth more than any other human could and yet I'm like, and yet y'all are still this dense when it comes to interacting with humans. Like y'all are this dumb. You've seen this for how many generations and you still think, oh, if I just like yell it, that'll get, okay, yeah, that's, that'll work. Perfect. Yep. Absolutely right. I mean, and I, I love that about the show is that we, we didn't get into any of this in the previous adaptations that we've seen. I don't want to say politics, but just the human human humanity, but like the interactions of the diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. The difference in the racial divide of the fact that one race has been created by the gods and given all of these things and these power and these this stuff. And the other has not <laughs> has not given that been given that same level of life, of success, of of things to to do. Um, inherent evolutionary skills yeah and so you almost feel gypped right by your creator it's very natural thing for them to feel and to have that resentment towards the elves and so playing that out in a long game is really intriguing i like but oh, I, go ahead. oh sorry go ahead oh i was just going to talk about the palantir because I, I was i was so excited to get to see it uh and i love the visualization that they used of, the cinematography oh in that gosh. scene. The way that like it covers itself in like ice and like comes onto the screen and then cracks the screen open and we boom, we're in the vision. Gorgeous. Yeah, I thought it was really beautiful. Uh, Galadriel, at the end of it, that vision, she says, you believe I will, well, Muriel tells her, she's like, this all starts with you, with the elf coming. And Galadriel says, you believe I will bring about Numenor's downfall? And Muriel says, only Numenor can bring about Numenor's downfall, which I think is a very foreboding line um, because of how Numenor will eventually fall. It definitely is by their own choice um, from characters who we've already been introduced to, in fact, um, who get some run in this episode who will eventually be a large player in why Numenor falls. Uh, and so... It's a, a lovely detail that I've noticed quite a few of in this episode, just these little singular lines of dialogue like that, where on the surface, you can read it as just her saying, you know, no, Numenor is responsible for itself. You know, elves, we're not, we, we can handle our business, right? She's kind of like pushing back against the idea that Galadriel would have any power here. 
but it does have that added layer of, but ultimately it's going to kind of come to pass in a different way than she really is envisioning it coming to pass and in a tragic way. And I, I just love how the show is weaving those little details into these small lines of dialogue. I'll point out more later, but yeah, I loved getting that whole moment, the whole interactions. I think every, everything we got between Galadriel and Muriel was important. And like you said, her having to come to grips with like, oh, your dad's up here and he's dying and you're trying to prevent some sort of a revolution from the people because if they know, then they're going to try to overthrow you and things are going to go crazy. And it's like, oh, okay, well, this is one of those situations where I didn't have all the information and she has to be confronted with that. So uh, yeah, ultimately, I love how their relationship is building. And I really hope that Muriel doesn't get sidelined somehow when we leave Numenor. I don't know how her character arc will play out, but I really like that character so far. I feel like they're going to have to sideline her. um, And I don't think it will be an offensive thing. I feel like they're going to have to sideline her only because as the queen or queen regent, she can't just leave Numenor. Like she's asking her volunteers to go on this journey and stuff like that. But like once Galadriel leaves, like there's not going to be much for her aside from like potentially getting updates on the war or the troops or whether or not more people need to join and things like that. They're going to have to sideline her. But they're, I don't think that it's going to be a sideline for the purposes of like, oh, this character no longer exists. It's just like it doesn't serve a purpose nece- necessarily to like the through thread storyline. Um, but what I liked most of all is that like even when both people were confronted with, okay, both of us need to like put down the daggers, like have a come to Jesus meeting and like just be like, okay, here are the facts. Like, I like that it didn't end with like a, oh, we're best friends now. Let's braid each other's hair and have a slumber party, which they do with a lot of really strong female leads as they all of a sudden just like flip the script when they're like, all it took was somebody with a heart of warmth to melt my, you know, my icy exterior. So it was just, it's one of those things where like, I'm glad that they both still remained very strong women with convictions that were like, I am doing this because in the end, I still think that this is ultimately the best decision for my people. I may not like the decision. I may not like you, but I recognize that as a person in this seat of power, this is what I need to do to move my country and my people forward. And that it wasn't all of a sudden like, let's hold hands and say unity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it ends with her kicking Galadriel out of Numenor still. I mean, the result, all of this stuff happens, like we make some progress between the two of them and, and just like, Get the out. original plan <laughs> before the, the kind of twist at the end is that Galadriel is leaving, right? And and then there's a realization that, okay, maybe maybe we need to rethink this. And The leaves do not fall idly. Yeah, uh, the tree, right? The tree happens. Oh my gosh, but that scene, I was like, uh, yeah, I love I it. Pull back to the original of them not idly falling. And it was like, oh, I found this in the dirt. But also it was like, hey, that tree is just shaking leaves and there's no wind. So what is up? Yeah. So for the slightest of backstory here, if anyone wasn't 100% sure on what was happening, essentially that's the white tree that the Valar gave them and when they created Numenor. And so it's like a an omen or a sign. And essentially they believe that the white petals falling off the tree are symbolic of the Valar watching and judging them. And so when that happens, as Galadriel is being 
banished from Numenor. It's kind of a, and I, they're in their brains. They're going, this is Eru God telling us you better back up because this is not cool. And you're going to call And it was in the vision, right? As the trees, yeah. the petals fall prior to the wave coming that destroys. So it's one of those like symbolic type warning. of warnings. Yeah. And so it's very, very powerful for them. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to reverse course and we're going to send some troops over to Numenor with you and let you, and let you have, uh, uh, we're going to, we're going to find a middle ground is essentially what they do, which is a lovely, lovely decision. Yeah, I know. We're all about compromise here in the world. <laughs> um, but like, I did find it so interesting as a way to tie two storylines together because, you know, later in this episode, not by much, but we, you know, we have the whole scene with Isildur and his friends where they're like on the ship and Isildur is like, oh, look, there's that whisper land again that just keeps creepily saying my name. And we still have no idea what it means. And all of a sudden he's like, whoops, the rope slip. And I love that the, uh, like the sea captain or what I, he has an official title and I can't remember what it is. Um, but he's literally like, no, like, I know you did that on purpose. Like, what the heck is your problem? He's like, you're out. But also, like, your best friends, they're out too because they couldn't keep you and your stuff together. So all of you, out. Um, and that really, like, I don't I don't particularly like Isildur right now, to be, to be fair. Like, I, I think Purposeful. he's really whiny. Yeah, I, I think he's really whiny and he is very selfish. And I think that he is, he is somebody that has a lot of privilege that pretends like he doesn't instead of somebody that has privilege and doesn't, like, you know what I mean? Like, he does have the the ability to fall back and his friends don't. And I really liked that humanizing scene where they were like, you don't get it. Like you literally just cost us our future. Like you have the luxury of daydreaming. We do not. And like, he's like, he's apologetic. Sure. But at the end of the day, like, I still don't think he actually grasped that he just cost his friends everything. And so like at the very end of the episode, when they're asking for volunteers and he volunteers, like his friends volunteer. So then all of a sudden he's like, Oh, I'll go too." like, to me, I I wish that they had almost framed that differently because one, it seems equally selfish to put yourself on a ship with people that you know do not want you there. Two, I wish that they had framed it as this is his opportunity to go to the Whisper Land. You know, like I wish that he had they had kept the line that they had given him before of that selfishness of like wanting that adventure and figuring out what that call was versus like, oh, oh, me too. Like I'll go, they're going, I'll go. Like, you know, it, you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like it's fitting with the not even the Asilder that we know. I just feel like there are a lot of loose, like frayed edges for his character right now. And I just want them to funnel it in and, and hone in on one aspect of who he is. If it's the selfish aspect, cool, be selfish. Like, I don't care. But I just feel like they're pulling him in a lot of different directions right now. And with us knowing who he ends up being, I just, I want them to to kind of just funnel in his character a little bit more. Like I wanted a little bit more tightness from that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can definitely see that. I, I felt... Personally, when I saw the volunteerism moment, like it was both of those things. I felt like it was him realizing this is his opportunity, but also intentionally saying, you know what, it, I have, I felt, and maybe this was me reading into it because it wasn't presented quite that way in which you picked it, felt the same way. So I could have just been, you know, wanting it to be this, but in my, I just feel like they should, he should have been like listening to, uh, like him, you know, asking for volunteers and then maybe like 
a fade out of, or like a flashback of the outline of the land mm-hmm. and it whispering his name and then having him volunteer. Cause yeah. then you just like, you're just looking at people volunteer and he's like, okay, I'll do it too. Like, I wish that there should have been like some callback yeah. to the root of why he wants to go. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I, I yeah, I agree. I, I can, I can see that. I did think that he was doing it partially for that and partially as guilt of, I have, cost these yeah. people i've screwed my and friends. now i need to go and like be with them and protect them. not protect them necessarily but i need to i need to put myself in the same boat as them again because i have Literally. i have caused this yes by taking them out of the boat there's another great little line that comes up during their interaction uh that i thought was interesting when one of his buddies it it's right before they actually get in like a pushing match um, once they're back on land and one of his buddies is, you know, going over the like he's telling him the whole thing about how you, know, you have privilege. And he says, the West, the real Numenor, and he, you know, he says it kind of scathingly. He says, That garbage your brother used to spew again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, your brother, Anarion, who we still have not met. Okay, so quick lore tangent. <laughs> In the lore, Anarion is one of the ship captains that ends up sailing with Al Farazan, and don't get my pronunciation is terrible there, but basically the chancellor who we see in this episode, the guy who wears blue with the ringed um, breastplate and the big bushy beard, that guy. Oh, he's the one that lets uh, Hallbrand out of jail. He's like, he's like, Oh, I'm not, Oh no, conveniently you overpowered me. Him, that guy. He is going to one in the lore. He will, sail he will be corrupted by sauron he will ultimately bring sauron to numenor theoretically and sauron corrupts numenor makes the men selfish or preys on their selfish desires right their resentment of the elves this is how the men fall and anarion is part of the crew he's he's on that group of boats that are sailing away with Farazon. so i really am intrigued now by when we're going to meet an Arion and how he's going to play into this story. And part of it is because every I'm trying to pick up every little clue and detail here because I want not, not because I'm in a hurry because I'm enjoying the, the journey of figuring out what is it that is going to slowly develop a Zildur into the guy who doesn't throw away the ring. Like that's my biggest. I don't think, in- I don't think that that's going to be a thing though. Like, cause uh, well, okay. So first, before I get into that, we might just want to put a marker on that clip just because if people want to skip that bit of lore, because if they, tie yeah, in I don't have, I know I'm not going to, I don't have time. Okay. Cool. To- <laughs> um, okay so like my thing with the sealed door is we, we don't have to see him turn into anything. Like we don't. Like there, there doesn't need to be a character arc because the whole point of the ring is that it preys on a very human emotion that all of us experience. Like it preys on greed, it preys on anger, it preys on envy, lust, like all of these things that are very human. And it, it, the biggest thing for me is it pre, it preys on greed and selfishness is at the end of the day. It's like, you don't have to exit, like outwardly exhibit those things in order for that ring to play off of them. Like we saw Frodo, the sweetest little, you know, cinnamon roll of a man. <laughs> not want to, you know, throw the ring into 
a fountain of lava by the end of three movies. That's a good point. (laughs) It could have been, you know, all the trauma that he endured. It could have been a bunch of different things. But like the the Frodo that we see that says, no, it's mine, is not the Frodo that we've seen for three movies. So there wasn't a singular act or there wasn't a big shift in his character where all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, that's not like Frodo, no. Like it was just like, I think that's the power in what we see of the ring is that like, Hmm. it does not take much. It takes a seed of that darkness and then that ring, when faced with literally self-destruction, it, it it waters that seed. Like Frodo, like it could have happened, to, it would have likely happened to Sam. It would have happened to anybody else. Like I don't think there needs to be like a critical like moment where mm. all of a sudden you see Isildur like turn to the dark side and then he can't take care, like he can't, you know, close this out or anything like that. I think that it takes somebody of massive amounts of willpower. And that's why like Gandalf is like, don't give me that ring. Like I know that's what it's going to do yeah. to me. Like even Galadriel, I think Galadriel exactly. was like, I don't, I passed the test. So I don't think it needs like a huge shifting moment or even small, subtle shifting moments because at the end of the day, the ring is just something that corrupts no matter who it touches, no matter who it comes in contact with. I think it's just more about whether or not you have more to corrupt. Like the ring in the hands of somebody that has more power, like Galadriel or Gandalf, the somebody that has more dangerous. something that can be easily manipulated into I want more or I need this is going to have a bigger explosion of that happening versus somebody that's just like, no, like this is mine, period. Yeah. And like, just what, like literally Frodo and Isildur just like turned around and wanted to walk out the volcano. Nobody was like, I'm going to like blow this world up and like, you know, kill everybody in sight. It was just literally like, no, it's mine. My precious. <laughs> yeah. So like I don't yeah. I don't think Isildur needs like a very like course shifting moment, but I do think that like we're already seeing inherent selfishness in him. Yeah. No, oh, I, I that's really good observation. And what I'll do, Aaron, I will I will note in the show notes. I mean since, Yeah, we, no, for sure. Already, I like I wasn't trying yeah, yeah. to tell you No, like, no, I agree. I just I just wanted to clarify that I agree with you that there is a point there. We have I've spoiled so much in like the previous three, I feel like sure. if you've listened, but you're right. There's no re- I can just put a note in the show notes that hey, by the way, we do talk about actual lore as well. So be aware of that. Yeah. Just to be fair. Yeah, to people. So thank you. We'll do that. Uh Farazon. So speaking of Farazon, part of what I mentioned that for was because I feel like we're seeing also the development there of this character who I really got this idea in this episode of he seems to be this guy with an ambition for power. He's, he's a little wishy-washy. Yeah, he's a little slimy because he joins the elf anti-elf demonstration, and he well, does he join or does he break it up? Well, he both. He but he he gets up. He does break it up, and and it he he gets drinks for everybody and all this stuff, but he also confirms their feelings to them. He acknowledges their feelings, and he says something to the effect of, "Listen, one elf is not gonna." change anything like we are still in power we are still men we are not going to give ourselves over to the elves so he kind of he calms them down but he definitely is standing with the anti-elf sentiment in public with this group but then in behind doors i, I feel know. like maybe i don't he's know if i different. agree with that okay though. okay like as I, I don't i think that this this is a great example of what true allyship looks like i don't think that he's standing with the anti-elf movement. I just don't think he's standing against it. Okay. All so right. like to me, to me, yes, those are two very different things. They are synonymous with one another. It's like saying, you know, you can, I you, like, there's one thing to just say, I'm not a racist. It's another thing to say I'm anti-racist. So it's the same thing. It's like, 
not like you're not sitting there saying that like this is ridiculous here are all the ways the elves have helped us or here are all the ways that they can continue to contribute instead what he does is he pivots the script and he says look at who you are as people and be secure in what you have to offer and recognize that this one elf doesn't detract from everything that you have done on this nation which he's not wrong but as any slimy politician will do it's it's making a stance without making a stance is it's essentially just saying like Okay, y'all, you know, like you're getting, you're getting a little rowdy. Like I'll buy y'all a couple drinks, but just like, just chill. There's no reason. There's no need to riot. Like this whole land is like, you know, we're going through a lot right now. The economy's <laughs> been down, you know, we're going through a, like a little bit of a phase. It's cool. I get it. She's rocking the boat. However, like you've got all these hundreds of years of history or like, like, why do you think this one person is going to, or this one elf is going to be the downfall of everything else that you've achieved? Like I said, I don't think that he's necessarily say like, I am anti-elf. But what he's trying to frame it more as is I am pro-human or I am pro-Numenor. I'm just not anti-elf. Like he can't take a stance because as any politician knows, and as we see through the course of literally just this one episode, that coin can easily flip the other direction. Is that Muriel makes a call at the very end of the episode, which if you can imagine the politician going through the square saying, I'm anti-elf, like the queen needs to banish her from these lands. And then all of a sudden she doesn't. You're stuck now trying to say, how can I both support my queen and contend with what I just told all these people? So by him not being anti-elf, all he does instead is say, I am pro-Numenor. It gives him that cushion middle, which is why I don't like politicians. And it's why I feel slimy every time he's on screen. Yeah, I, I think that's so well said. <laughs> I just, I really appreciate that because I agree with you. I think 100%. I think that's where I'm getting at when I say wishy-washy. Um, but I love, yeah. I love your distinction there because it is important and i think it's a little different than what i had started off by viewing that as you're right um I, I, you're, he doesn't do anything distinctly anti-elf uh it's not like he treats I mean, he her technically lets her he doesn't treat prison. her like crap when she's in in yeah. person with him etc so it, it, there's not a an outward expression of like a racism from him um, you're right. There's it's not like it's playing the crowd. maliciousness or anything. But like that, that exactly and that like does playing the game. I think he's, that does playing chess. play into his ambition for power and his his desire to, which will combined an ambition for power combined with his pro Numenor at all costs kind of mentality will probably bleed into decisions that he will make later in the course of history, um, and we'll see how that goes in the show. Well, I think we see we see a fragment of it though when he when Hallbrand's like, uh, like you if you don't know where she's going, like I would just let her go. Like he's supposed to be dedicated to the queen and he knows the scuffle that they had earlier. So I can like you could almost see the cogs working in his brain of is he gonna kill her? Like if he is, if she is, is this my chance to see his power? Like you can see like the fact that he just sits back, it's not like way. Eleanor where it's like, he, he's literally like, like, I'm not, I don't hate elves. Like I, you're a proud people. Like I'm here to help. Like you can tell that Farazhan's like, I'm gonna wait and see what she gonna do. Yeah. I'm just gonna sit back and let, let it happen. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. I mean, and he does, I think we get the indication that he somehow alerts the queen because when she gets up there to meet with Mariel, Muriel says, like, we can talk, but there's a, there's a guard waiting for you outside now. So she does get, I mean, they knew she was coming and they essentially lay, I don't want to call it a trap because it's not that nasty, but it, they allow her to get there. Muriel allows her to have that conversation all while knowing that the moment she walks out that door, it's not like she's just free. 
she is yeah she is going right I think back. it's more about just preparedness <laughs> yeah. is that like the queen having a guard outside her and her father's door is not a shocking thing like her dad's like dying he's obviously super vulnerable and she's up there visiting so like having a guard there to me is just that's just common sense more than anything else but like I don't know if it's necessarily that like she was alerted that she had broken out of prison I think more than anything else Muriel's like she's an elf she's gonna break out of prison oh see I see like, I play it different, very differently when Halbrand tells him at the gate he says or you could let her go if you knew where she was going and then he slinks back and Ferizan like goes okay and my reading of it was simply that Halbron then tells yeah, her about it that way hey she's going here because what what Muriel says is there's a she says there is a there is a legion of troops waiting for you outside my my door or there is a there is a yeah a i didn't think group of troops she doesn't say a guard I just don't she know says how like he a, would like I, yeah oh how would he get the message right oh yeah by raven whisper it to the wind no, raven. and the wind will take it like. <laughs> yeah i i totally agree and and ultimately that's not much of an important detail sure but um we also get to meet people like us are like how did they know <laughs> we also get to meet his son and i thought this was an interesting new pairing and startup of a, of a character relationship so uh Aarion, the daughter of Elendil is in the Builders Guild, and we meet Kemen, who is the son of Farazan, who alerts him to the demonstration, and then afterwards he ends up talking to Aarion, and we get two interactions with them, one here at the start of the episode there, and then another later when she is scrubbing some floors in which he offers to assist and I see the budding of uh, a flirtatious little bit of a relationship here, which uh, should be very interesting. I, I have no idea where that's going. I just see it as a potential for future family entanglement between Isil, I don't uh, like him. Alindil and Farazan, who in the lore have very different perspectives on Numenor. And so if their children end up yeah. Oh, yeah. He looks. He's very slimy to me already as well. I don't like him either. But. I don't know. I would say that he's like he's not slimy in the way that his father's slimy. No, he's just like I don't. I he's get like sly, though. I, I hate. He, I hate my dad, and I'm just like a drunk frat boy kind of vibe from him. Like I just get that like that kid just parties and like tries to do his own thing because he's tired of being in his dad's mm -hmm. shadow, but he just ends up being like a like a weird kid about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't love him. I mean, I think that's part yeah. of what's interesting is is going to be see like I said, how do they. Yeah come together and then what does that do to their dads when it yeah. comes to the Numenor power structure down the road uh, so I like mm -hmm. that I like that that we're getting some sort of kind of interaction there between these like characters. a future proof yeah. of, of where that's gonna pull yeah or where it could pull yeah Arion also calls Isildur Isil by the way in this episode as do his friends his friends call, one of them calls him Isil and one of them calls him Sil and I just I'm not over this like the idea of nicknames in middle earth is not a very normal thing and it drove me nuts when she was like but is still and i was like oh my gosh stop okay. I, I did not like it <laughs> just a stupid little detail that i was like oh. no no i i actually no i i think that because stupid little details are what make up world building and what i find so interesting is like when people latch on to stuff like that like it feels like it pulls them out but the way that I also look at it is we don't spend a lot of time with characters as they're growing up in more casual situations in any of the books. 
we are spending time with these people that are thrust into these massive worldly situations where things are resting on their shoulders, where they're having to meet a bunch of new people. We're not like Pippin gets called Pip all the time. And that's a nickname. It's a shortened version of his name. And it's like, but but you only get that from friendliness and from known relationships, which in most of the stories, it's not focused on people that have grown up together. It's not focused on people that have, you know, spent decades together forming bonds and, you know, relationships and things like that. So like, I definitely do get like Isil or like, like somebody calling like, okay, uh, you know, Elrond is, you know, Ronnie. Like, yeah, okay, absolutely not. If somebody called Elrond Ronnie, I would lose it. But I do think that it is a a somewhat humanizing moment because we are seeing these relationships and whether you're a human, an elf, a dwarf or whatever, like you're going to have, like, I I think it's just, it's a very natural thing to have like a a sweetness to those nicknames or to those shortened versions of those names. Um, Because I think it creates a sense of familiarity, Mm -hmm. which you don't really get in other, in other books. Mm -hmm. Like I said, Pip is like the only one. Nobody's going to call Frodo Fro. I hope not. And technically Sam is a nickname. Okay, that's true, but I, yeah, uh, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I, I think I'm just saying. It felt, I'm here to. I'm here to flip your logic. No, I I agree. I mean, I I appreciate that. I will always love it when you bring that perspective to it because it, it it makes sense what you're saying, and it just felt like a CW line to me. It, sure. it felt like a high school drama like moment. I think if she had called him like Izzy, I would have been okay. Like, yeah. I mean, that would have obviously, yeah. I mean, they did a fine job of like, at least making it re- realistic. Yeah. Worldly. A, yeah. A nickname. I just, I was, I guess I, I yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about it like that. And I should, I see, I see okay where you're it. coming from, but I like my mentality high, is like, it's just a shortened relationship kind of thing. It is. And you're right. Like you're so right. Like that's part of what doing this in a show format is different because in the texts it is, all written in a very different way. Like Tolkien's writing is super higher. Yeah, formal. Perfect word for it. And so it just doesn't feel like a natural type of Well, it's formal and it starts off with the action. Like there's no buildup to the action. It starts off with you, here's the world, here's where we're going to take it versus like, here's the world, get to know these characters and see where the journey is. Here's what they were like when they were growing up together. Yeah, exactly. Playing with blocks and the floor. Anyway, okay. Anything else for Numenor? thoughts on on that whole section no i mean i i like that we didn't get much from hallbrand because i'm excited that like taking this into the southlands next like from hallbrand is like a lot of stuff happened in the southlands in this episode and i think that like between both the southlands themselves as well as the human aspect of like you know bronwyn and the refugees and everything like that like there was a lot of meat there like there was more tension i think in the medial galadriel scenes but like the Southlands was where we got all the action this episode is we got more, we got more information about Adar. We got more information about um, uh, Theo. Like we got, we got a lot more depth in some of those characters, but it was paced with action versus the diplomacy that we had to see going on in Numenor. So like, I'm interested to see how they tie Hallbrand back to what's happening in the Southlands, because right now we've, we have only heard of Hallbrand in relation to Numenor and Galadriel's story line so with everything that's happening in the southlands in this episode i'm eager to see how they start to maybe bridge those two things is he going with her are we certain i don't know because he's like he didn't want to go he's still he's still technically a prisoner so he wants to stay uh in i don't blame him I don't blame him. Yeah, I think he's gonna have to go. I think he's like I think he's go. like there, there, to me like you can't give us one character 
that you only used to propel her story that got into a massive fight that we don't really have any explanation around yet and then say, all right, she's just going to go, but you can stay here and you can yeah. join a uh, Smith guild yeah. until the whole island floods. I feel like the, that's part, a big part of the reason why he got in that fight from a, yeah. from a writer perspective is for his character to then generate a reason <laughs> for them to yeah, like to boot, boot him off like, the island. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't expect so that would make sense. Okay. So Southlands, yeah. his homeland. Speaking of that, this is where we get some interesting drama, kind of two different pieces to this. We get Adar's ultimate opening with his, we get to meet him for the first time. Um, and he has a conversation with a We see that he has a scarred and burned face. He. Okay. I'm sorry. But like every time you say his name, which one? You say like a like you say it a Ron Deer. Is that not it? Like I'm just thinking Era, like Aaron Deer. Well, no, it's just like the way that you say it, like you say it as like three separate syllables, and it literally just I my brain and I'm sorry, like tangent. My brain literally imagines Ron Swanson's face on a deer's body because you say it like a Ron Deer, not like a Ron Deer. Like it's one word. You say it as like three separate syllables, and every time you say. it... <laughs> Not what I meant to. You and that show, you and that, oh, you have a, that show, that show is, that's just changed my life. I'm sorry, continue, but just every time you say his name, like you say it, it's like it's three separate names with a hyphen in between each thing. I hope I can figure this out, but I think it's going to continue. So, anyway, he's talking to our elven soldier prisoner friend, and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we learn that he has a scarred and burned face. And he also, uh, thanks to a wonderful Reddit thread, because I'm not smart enough to notice this on myself, because it was really, really dark, by the way. But his breastplate is almost identical, if not identical, to the one that Gil-Galad is wearing uh, in the opening episodes, which is, uh, it, it depicts a river. And there's some dialogue about a river in this as well. Um, Aaron Deer <laughs> asks him if he was born in Beleriand, which is where many of these elves, the Noldor, uh, came from. And he does specifically refer to this famous river that is there and says, you know, I went down that river once when I was young. So I think all of the dialogue here is intended to tell us that Adar is a Noldor, and which is kind of in the group of elves that Galadriel is as well. They were ones who kind of revolted a little bit against the Valar and decided to go fight against Morgoth, even when they weren't necessarily supposed to. So puts a little bit of a spin and interesting uh, nuance to this character and where he came from and where what, what might have happened in order to take him an opposite direction from obviously where the rest of his elf brethren have gone and how did he become someone that has this name that means father and he's being called father by these orcs so it's really interesting kind of it's not long but i felt like it was a great introduction to his character um i literally only have one thought on this character and then like we can move on if you want but like I, I I don't have any other additional thoughts because I'm just eager to see what they do with this. But I just have to make it known. I'm really, really tired of characters that are evil being disfigured. Like, I'm really sick of it. I'm tired of them having burns or having, like, 
massive scars of some, like, can you like, to me, it's far more realistic. And I, I'm saying this in relation to it still being a fantasy show is it's far more realistic to have somebody that looks like a normal freaking elf that didn't have to have some, you know, skin trauma that occurred at some point that has led them down this dark path. Like for me, like I, I just want somebody that looks like Elrond. That's like, yeah, I'm here to like set crap on fire and, you know, build a new world. Like I just, I I'm tired of that immediate trope of evil people in shows having some form of disfigurement. It's just, it drives me insane. I can't stand it because we don't ever see other elves that are disfigured that are fighting on the other side. That's true. Like, that's just it. It's like, if we got balance, I don't think it would bother me as much, but we almost always only see people that are disfigured fighting on the evil side. Um, I do think that he's, you know, I know we talked about it, Lucy, like a corrupted elf. Like I, I think that like, it'll be interesting to see the tie backs on whether or not this is like, a war against what the elves have tried to do to middle earth. And he's trying to remake middle earth. Is he trying to remake everything? Like, does he eventually choose, like want to go to Valinor and try to remake, like, does he want to remake everything in the universe or does he really only want to remake middle earth? Um, so like, I'm eager to see where they take his storyline. Um, because like you said, you know, like there is that empathetic moment that he has with the orc. So like, you can tell that there is a humanizing component to him, which I actually really liked. I don't like evil just for the sake of being evil because most evil that exists in this world is masked through something else. Um, so I've always enjoyed villains that are significantly more, like ha they have more depth to them than just, I'm here to like decapitate everybody and stuff like that. Like, And he has a very clear plan when he's like, Arandir, like go warn them, like tell them that like this is their this is my plan and they have an option, but like, he's not just like, I'm going to murder. I'm going to cut off your leg and then tell you to run as fast as you can. And the orcs, I'll give you like a 30 minute head start. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's not vindictive or he's not vindictive in the way that we've seen other villains be. And so I'm eager to see how they take this storyline because obviously like there's something there to him where he, he's almost like a Thanos character in a way where he's like, he's trying to be soft and he's trying to give people the benefit of the doubt because what he believes he thinks is right is like people that are just going to fight against it. Okay. Then there's not a space for you in this new world, but he is giving people the choice, which is not something that you would generally see from anybody that associates with orcs. So it's like, he's a, he's a quiet psychopath at this point. Like, and I'm, I'm eager. I'm that, that to me interests me far more than somebody that just kills to kill. Um, so yeah, that, that's really all I have to say about him. So I'm eager to see where they take his storyline in the next few couple episodes. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. I Good point on the disfigurement. Absolutely a trope that is way, way, way too common and should be called out. So I'm glad you did. Um, I think that there is definitely some depth here. Just even imagining he is a Noldor and kind of where his history probably came from. It'll be fun to see what it is that makes him turn, what it is that is appealing to him about Morgoth slash Sauron that would make him want to serve him and remake the world. He tells Arondir that he has been told many lies and that, and I love this dialogue, that to untangle it all would, to untangle it would all but require the creation of a new world. That is something that only the gods can do, but I am no god, not yet. And I was just like, oh, okay, ambition. Super. And like, he says it yeah. all really quietly, and he's, too. Oh, yeah. like, he's not yelling at it. He's like, he's just like, I'm no god. I think I'm the like, performance is, is really good so far. I mean, in the very limited we've had. But, you know, we talked about last week how when the casting call went out and they really needed someone that could pull off this 
this nuance to that. And I think so far we're seeing that. So yeah, not a lot to go on here other than uh, very curious where he takes it. I did also like the moment of empathy that we see from him. He seems to genuinely care about the orcs, which is really interesting because I don't know if we've ever seen a character in middle earth lore adaptations care about orcs, but we just see them used. He is essentially like doing the whole, like I'm closing the eyes of the dying orc. He, he kills him, but he's putting him out of his misery. And he, he genuinely is like compassionate to this death of this orc, which is like, wow, holy cow. Um, and they call him father for it. Yeah. So fascinating because orcs didn't create themselves either. That's another angle that has never really been explored. They're just evil, right? We just, they're just yeah, an embodiment of evil. Yeah, we don't know much about, like, yeah, we don't know much of, like, the cockroaches of Middle Earth, essentially. But, like, it's it's one of those things where, and I, I remember saying this years ago when the first sets of Lord of the Rings movie came out, is that, like, I would actually really like to know about orc culture because even, like, we get glimpses of it in, like, the Two Towers with the Orkai and you get moments of it in like the return of the King when they're in the tower and stuff like that. And like, even if it is a culture that, you know, preys on anger, you know, vengeance, envy, stuff like that. Like I would just be really interested to know because you said orcs didn't create themselves. We have yet to see any female orcs as far as I know, like what births them? Like, you know, there's the joke in the move in the movies about, you know, like dwarfs just springing up from the ground. And all we see about the Urukai is like when uh, Saruman pulls them from the earth and like takes that, you know, uterine sack off of them. And is like, oh, yeah, by the way, like, here's this mud baby that I found. Like, it's just one of those things where like, you don't and he's like a fully grown man when he comes out of that sack of skin. So it's like, is that where orcs also come from? Like, are they born of the earth and magic? Like, we don't know much about that. And we don't know what their culture is, quote unquote. Like, I would be very interested to know whether or not they're going to bleed any of that into this. Absolutely. I think they get to create it. That's one of those great opportunities for full creative liberty is like, you get to decide what that looks like because we don't know. And so this is the beginnings of that, which is really neat. This ADAR thing obviously kind of bleeds into, ultimately converges a little bit with the human refugees. We learn that Bronwyn has helped lead the humans from the little settlements uh, to this like watchtower area where they are essentially holing up and trying to stay safe in the midst of learning that these orcs had been tunneling into their villages and pillaging and killing and stuff. And we kind of get this sense that she's taking a leadership role. Uh, she is, you know, trying to ensure that people uh, stay safe, stay clothed, stay warm, that sh- that food is rationed. Theo is acting like a teenager, incredibly impatient, somewhat, you know, ambitious too. And that he's like, listen, he has a good idea in a, in a way. He's like, listen, there's a settlement down the road that has already been sacked. Like we could go there and collect food. We need the food. Why can't we go it's do that? It's not a settlement. It's their home. Or it's, is it theirs? Yeah. It's, yeah so it's, it's their it's home. Yeah. He's like, we need to go get our food and it, we can do it during the day. So it's as safe as possible. And they're like, no, let's wait. And he's like, I can't, I'm not waiting. You can't tell me what to do. I'm a teenager. Right. And so he and his friends sneak out uh, against mom's wishes and boom, what happens? They encounter orcs. And so we get this big kind of tense, somewhat action sequence of him with the hilt engaging with it and having this chase scene with the orcs. So I really love this. Did you like this whole section at all? Yes and no. Okay. Um, 
something that I will always have a problem with in any story that uses it is people that hide in a well. Um, it's not realistic, feasible to do it in the <laughs> no, way that he did so it. Dumb. And it's not so fantasy for him. Like he goes underwater and then the orc is like a foot away. And then all of a sudden he's like, <gasps> but the orc doesn't hear it. So it's like, I don't, you, so not only did you like come out of the water, like Ariel, like you gasped so loudly that like your mother heard it in the tower up the road. So it's like, and the orc's like, Oh, Guess he's not here. No, 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 no. Like it just like, and that happens anytime anybody is in a well. Is I'm like, you hear it. Wells echo like nobody's business. If you've ever been around a well that has water in it, it echoes like crazy. And so it's just it's one of those things where anytime anybody hides in a well, my brain immediately is like, this isn't realistic. Like that would be the dumbest thing. You also just gave yourself hypothermia because that water's like you just absolutely frozen. Um, now when he goes to creep through the village at night that to me is where i started getting more invested um the fact that his friend just straight up abandons him i'm like smart oh yeah smart. i was like, like you go man yeah, get that food like, you, you literally told <laughs> he's him he's running with the wheelbarrow this. like i'm yeah. out and it's getting yeah, dark Theo's <laughs> like i'm gonna go in there and get some stuff and the kid was like okay but like we should go and the guy's like i'll be right back and he's like i'm out like and i was like you know what bravo yeah bravo you know what sometimes you have to look out for your own and i appreciate that because i hated that kid in the first episode and so he's like, I like that when he gets there, though, he's like, oh, he said he was right behind me. Not once did you ever turn around to check. Like, he was just like, oh, Theo said he was right back there. So I just assumed and I just kept going. Like He said it like, oh, it's not my fault. He said he was coming. So I, I my favorite part of this is the sword, the hilt, learning that it essentially kind of connects to the body. Clearly, it's activated via blood and essentially it. It is bonding with the skin and the arm in some way. And just the visualization, this is this is what I live for. Like the visualization of that hilt materializing through fire into an actual full sword and the orc being like the eyes just lighting up like, how did you get that? What is going on? And then him you, it just loved it. It loved it. Loved the idea. But that's of it. what they were apparently looking for. They were searching like I, for there, it. Yeah, I was like, there, there are a lot of things here that I'm like, I have questions on because I'm like, this, this hilt doesn't seem like it's just some, uh, like, just another relic of Sauron's. Like, there's something that's important about this specific hilt. But the way that the barman acts at the very end yes. is that it's just, um, it's just a hilt from like the dark days or whatever. Like, he acts as if it's like this is something that like you have to be ready for. Like, okay, creepy barman. Like just chill for a second but it's like there's obviously something more to this specific hilt but we don't know what that is yet and i don't like yeah. i i i have a lot of questions that i don't feel like have been they haven't rounded out anything in relation to the hilt yet and that like i'm like okay it's a little bit messy like i'm trying to i'm trying to stick with it at this point because i'm also like how is your mom just like not notice that you've got a giant gash in your arm and that like you know, she seems to be all up in your business all the time to make sure that you don't get into trouble or do stupid stuff like what you did today. I was like, but she hasn't noticed that you're, you know, lugging around a giant piece of metal and have a giant hole in your arm. Like it just, there just, there's a little bit of messiness there that I, I'm hoping that they, they clean up a little bit. Yeah, I, I I love the hilt thing. I think it's just a. I oh, don't the know. material ages. That's amazing. I don't like, know. The effects that they use for that are great. Yeah, I like I, I like the concept too. I just I don't know. Like you said, we don't know what it is that's important about it and why it's unique. I, I mean, because I, mean, I have a question. Then. It's got to so, like, be Sauron's sword. So it's got to be Sauron, some sort of Sauron's or Morgoth's like sword. It has to have been theirs or something because it is clearly activated by blood in some way. Yeah. The barkeep has obviously done it as well. Like he shows Theo his arm. That whole moment is incredibly foreboding when he's like, 
the Starfall has foretold that it, it's Sauron's return, essentially, is what he says. He doesn't. And then he's like, we, you know, we need to be making things be ready. ready. And so you learn that there is essentially a follower of Sauron, Morgoth, like in this human settlement. So house. like, it's not just this, this rogue elf and the orcs, like it is already spreading and there is a following that is forming. And now Theo has this thing that is, you know, we can assume probably is going to influence him. And how is that going to play out with, Obviously, his mother is most likely going to be on the other side of this, no matter what. Is he going to be corrupted somehow by it? Well, and like the thing about the hilt that I don't understand is so like you stick it into your arm, your blood makes like a blade happen of some kind. But like, it's not like you're fighting with it on your arm like this. Like, yeah. So when you take it out of your arm. I think it would it not dematerial like I don't, I don't like how and then because then all of a sudden it's just a, a hilt again at some yeah, point. That's a good question. I mean, I think I, it's smart. Is it just it's at some point going to grow and be your arm? Like, is are you just going to, you're going to be Captain Hook, but with a, like a, a detractable sword? I don't like, know. I don't, like, I, I think it more. That's what's messy to me is the magic surrounding it. <laughs> yeah. I, yes. Fair. But okay. I think it's. So how did you feel about the arrow scene though? With freaking bad. Like, how did you feel about I, like all three of those scenes coming together? I loved the scene interesting even with all the slow-mo no this slow-mo was i was i paused it rewatched it right away instantly i thought it looked awesome i so like the the first kill i thought was amazing like where you're like okay theo like you brought this on yourself dude i have zero shit like you know what bye like i'm fine go and then like that first kill moment i was like oh like yes get it and then like okay let's run but theo's like okay i can only you know kind of go so fast but let's go um definitely can't keep up with an elf and so, like, Arondir's, like, running through the woods, trying to clear a path and everything like that as best he can. He was given his stuff back by Adar. So at some point, he has traversed however many miles back into town, mm-hmm. saved Theo, mm-hmm. and then has to slow himself down to run behind Theo to make sure that none of the orcs get him. Yes. But part of me is also like, okay, so Adar let you loose. And if any of these elves, like if any of these orcs kill you, like that defeats the whole purpose. So we already know you have to get away. Like you, like that's kind of the whole point. But like, I felt like that slow-mo shot of him, like grabbing arrows out of the air, like that stuff was really well done. I felt like the slow-mo running was not necessary. I was like, throw like for me, like the slow-mo, I was like, I need the slow-mo when you're giving me something to do with it. Like not just like, this is really tense. So we're running and oh my gosh, is that his mother? Like, oh, oh yeah. like that, that and I'm, I'm also like, Bronwyn, what the heck were you going to do? Like you're running through there in a skirt, Horrible. like in boots. Like what you didn't have a weapon. On, like, what are you going to do? She's the mom. Like, it, was, it, was a very, it was like, it was a very like, it's a mother's love. And I'm like, okay, but you can also be a smart mother. Like, eh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I felt like it, it made sense to me. I actually thought Arondir might die. Like, this is too much Game of Thrones that I've watched. I wish that he had gotten more. I wish he had been injured, injured in some or way. something because I felt yeah. like I was like, he's going to save Theo. He is. I mean, there's a lot of freaking orcs frankly and when well, we haven't really seen a display of I his thought, elven abilities I because on him, more than one occasion i'm like you already been caught or bronwyn i thought bronwyn might get an error i thought bronwyn was gonna die i yeah. thought like or like again shot through the arm or something yeah. which would have made sense honestly the way that because she she has no ability to defend herself but i, I liked that it just as of. a sense of like a rondier showing his abilities again yeah. overall just Fine. i, no, I just was probably finally. honestly i was just so mesmerized by the whole slow-mo arrow catch and turn and shoot i just thought 
Like that's such. I thought it was really well done. Such a fantasy elf thing that we hadn't seen yet for some reason, and it, and I was like, oh my god, it was amazing. And then I also like just you know the idea of we're continuing to build upon this orcs being afraid of the sunlight, which I love because that's a historical like yeah. feature of them that we really weren't that aware of in in our adaptations. And we know that we are going to grow to a point where that doesn't happen. Like orcs eventually are basically, I think it's showing us like Sauron and, and ultimately Saruman are going to be like, well, we need orcs that don't get scared of the sun. <laughs> Cause, yeah, uh, we cause work, like we need orcs that can work on our time. Yeah, we found a way for them to be beaten was just to run out into the open field. Um, so I, yeah, ultimately I did like all of that and I am, I'm glad that they're back together. Um, but I am very curious about Edar's motivations in letting him go. I, I just had a thought. Just oh, no. Ooh, or oh, yes. Bronwyn, zero weapon in hand, per our previous theories about her very conveniently placed headband. Oh, elf. Yeah, possibly an elf. Maybe she doesn't need weapon. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she's just not got an opportunity to show her skills yet. But also, she still runs really slow. So I'm yeah. thinking maybe half. I'm actually, like half I'm actually thinking she's probably human at this point, and I'm crazy. But I don't think that we're crazy. <laughs> I think it was a very well. The thing is, I don't think that we're crazy for questioning it. Whether or not they do anything with it is totally up to the writers. But I don't think we're crazy for questioning it because it was a very deliberately placed headband, and it's very intrinsically linked to the fact that she knows a lot about plants and herbs. It's about the fact that we don't know who Theo's father is. Like there are a lot of breadcrumbs that I don't think we're crazy for questioning whether or not there's something more to it, whether or not there actually is, even if it turns out that there isn't like, I don't think it's going to like all of a sudden be like, Oh, I knew we were crazy, but like, I think it's very intentional what they're doing. I just, I'm like, again, like mothers love my butt. You're in the middle of a war. You would have brought a dagger or something with you to chase after Theo. Cause like, what were you going to do? Just run and then carry him in your arms as you run back to the tent. Like there's no way. And you went out at night. Like to me, it was just, it was like, it didn't make any logical sense. And I didn't even get the, she's a mother. She just ran after her baby. Like, no, she like, she, she's been smart about literally everything. And she decapitated an orc in like her kitchen. That's so true. like, she she can handle a blade at some point or another. She, she like just me, just like a small one in your hand. Like I'm not asking you to have a machete as you're going through the woods or anything like that. I just wish that she had had like a little something. Um, but yeah, and I'm I'm glad that all three of them are together. I still don't particularly love the whole like longing glances and brushed hand tips for them and everything like that. But that's just that, that's again, I can recognize that's just personal preference. Yeah, it's gonna happen though. Whether <laughs> that's the that's the romance we're getting, whether we like I it or want. Hopefully, it, give Theo a haircut instead. Hopefully grows on you oh my god yes that would be great can't stand his hair. maybe when he enlists in sauron's army that'll be part of boot camp kazad doom so we both love our dwarves we both love our moria i'll let you just kick the so i'll let you just talk about this whole section like what you what you liked liked about it the most i just i love like literally any moment like as somebody that's claustrophobic i'm very much enjoying every moment we spend underground I think I think part of it is we got so much of the other components of the world in all three of the Lord of the Rings movie. We spent significant amount of time in Rivendell. We spent a good chunk of time, obviously, in like the human world. And we saw so many of these components that we really only had those few very traumatic scenes with anything to do with how dwarves live. And we were seeing the shell of how dwarves live. And so for me, like the reason why I latch onto and love these Casa Doom stories so much is because I just, I just feel like we didn't get enough in any of Lord of the Rings because we literally only had one dwarf. We didn't have anybody else. We didn't have, we didn't have context. We didn't understand 
the culture around a bunch of different things. And they have the ability to do so much here creatively that I'm really interested in what they're doing because like the inherent suspiciousness of dwarves given like what they do for a living, quote unquote, and um, their you know, they're little, they're like little baby dragons, honestly, is the way that I've always loved thinking about dwarves is like, they literally have their own hordes. Like they, they, they like being underground. They like warmth. They like to, you know, eat and drink and they like yeah. their comforts. They're little baby dragons. They and like I love shiny that about things. Dwarves. Exactly. And so it's, it's one of those things where like seeing these components of what we already know kind of happens in little puzzle pieces is amazing. And like, oh my gosh, Mithril, I like screamed. I was so happy because I was literally like, if they're, I thought they were going to like, I don't know what I thought they were going to say they were mining for because in my brain, I was like, they already know what it is. Like they already know Mithril exists. Like I didn't realize that they hadn't discovered it yet. And then Elrond was like, oh yeah, I I know the name of this, but I'm also like, why, how did, like, if this is something that dwarves have never discovered, like, and elves are not native to middle earth, like, how do you know what this is called? Well, historically, so I, this is one of the elements of the show that I have come to just completely accept. And mm. I just don't, I don't get the, the people that are upset about the lore and the timeline. We are condensing thousands of years of the second age oh. into singular moments. And if you had all of these characters doing these things across thousands of years, as they actually different, you know, took place, we would be time jumping Every sure. all over the place. No, so no, no, I know, I know. I you're think not I just that. don't. I just I'm think not, I just don't know when things are actually have yeah. been and haven't been discovered. Yet. Oh, I know. I I'm, that was I'm on a tangent now. Concern. I'm just yeah. saying, okay, like gotcha. in general, people who are, if you're out there and you're concerned about like timelines, you got to let go. You got to let go of that because you don't want a show where your characters can never interact. So if if you know if Galadriel and Numenor is happening a thousand years apart from when the dwarves are discovering Mithril, because that's when it actually happened per the lore that is not a good show it's boring you're not going to ever get durin and elrond together with Gal- you know what i mean like you need these i don't kids. want a time jump you yeah. gotta mix and put these things together so dwarves definitely discovered mithril somewhere in this age but i, I believe that elves actually did as well um and they had a different name for it i don't remember it's like ithildum or something like that um it starts with an ithil but they love that they love their they do they do so i think i think it makes sense like from a standpoint of like they could both have a knowledge Together, yeah. that this thing exists um and but i loved it i loved everything about like i, I it was scene. it was a surprise to me and so i did not expect the discovery like you just said discovery of mithril to be part of our storylines and it was like wow and for him to give a piece of it to elrond that trust the moment, friendship that was like a big <laughs> thing for both of them and i'm also like what I thought was really beautiful about all of these scenes is that it showed both of the faults of both characters. And it showed that like neither one of them was trusting the other. And that was leading to this discord distrust that continued to build for both of them that culminated in both of them realizing like, okay, we either are friends or we're not. And both of us have to give up something if we're going to, if, if we're actually going to call each other friends, if we're not, then like, we'll just call a spade a spade and I'll leave. But like both of them realize that like, it's a reciprocal relationship. If you're both keeping secrets, then neither one of you is going to win. And that moment where he's literally like, okay, fine. Like swear on this stone. Like, and then Elrond takes it a step further beyond just swearing. Like he swears by both dwarves' respectiveness and and also elves. And like to show the the depth of that, I'm like I'm also sitting there like Elrond, if you screw him over, I know, I will literally never forgive, forgive you. you. Yeah, I 
this is my favorite relationship in the show so far, which doesn't really surprise me. We loved Legolas and Gimli. That's why we're getting this is because people gravitated toward that. And I, and I think if this is giving us a dwarf and an elf in a different way, because these are leaders and not fighters. And so I just, I'm eating it up as well. And like you said, you said so perfectly about how they both distrust each other. Yeah, we see Elrond basically going like all Sherlock Holmes on Disa. I was cracking up. He's like, well, based on the angle of the axe laying near the hearth and the amount of residue on the handle, I will interpolate that, uh, you know. And, yeah, and, and he's she's like, oh, like, okay, but if your husband's mining this, why is this stuff? <laughs> like, she's I'm like, just like, or maybe. Disa's like. <laughs> Oh yeah, I love Hold my beer. <laughs> I loved her putting him in his place um, with that. And she put him in his place with a lie. That's the best part is that she was literally like, "Actually, douche canoe." <laughs> and she's like, "Let me tell Do you, you have any other and questions?" Then all of a and he's like, like, "Nope, thank you, I'm done." <laughs> and then she's like, "Okay, so I totally lied. I played it off though." And I was like, "So Pizza! good, so good." And then we we also get a little more on. I, I'm just loving her character inclusion in this whole yes. show. Such a new thing, completely that we've never seen before, and and when the mine collapses and they have that ceremony, which now we get back to back different cultural type of ceremonies in two episodes. We see the Harfoots having one and now we see this and she's singing. Oh God. So we learned early on in episode two, they talked about her resonating the fact that she can sing to the mountain essentially and influence the stone to tell them where the mine, the ore. And so that's what she's doing is She's it's called a plea to the rocks is what the episode actually is is titling it to where she's asking the stone to release the dwarven miners that are stuck in this collapsed mine. And it is it is so perfectly depicted to me because it's not just singing like it is almost operatic, like powerful, like you really get the sense. They they called it the right word by saying it's resonating. Like they called it the right thing. Like, cause it really is like, you feel that like there's a depth to it mm -hmm. that feels ancient and powerful and, and mythical. And it's just, I like, there's so much in these scenes. Like, and when you get so, to cause, see I mean, technically the you've seen three, moving you've in seen the three rock. cultural oh. things, like, cause we saw the, the stone cracking thing yeah, at the very beginning too. So like, we've seen so many bits of, of dwarf culture in this. And then like, to also see the different relationships that are happening within dwarves. Cause like I said before, like all we had before was Gimli. So like we have pieces from the Hobbit that we can, you know, build upon and stuff like that as far as the relationship between friends, but the father son relationship and the husband wife relationships, those are things that we never had before. And there are things that these writers have been able to develop and to pull upon and to make Disa like as fully her own character while still not detracting from the overall storyline with Durin, I thought it's been done so beautifully and so respectfully to also like the other components of dwarf culture that we've been able to see that I don't feel like, because I, I was very wary of knowing the, you know, the addition of African-American and or people of color to the series. I did not want to feel like there was tokenism, that they created these characters or that they added these characters into the world just to say, you know, for the sake of diversity. But like she is so beautifully constructed as a character, and I, if I'm not mistaken, the actress that plays her is classically and operatically trained as well. She like is. that is really her singing in that episode. Yep. And like to see the full depth of that character, and to see her interactions when when Durin's not around, 
to me, that was really important is that like, we get to see how she acts with Elrond as well as how she acts with a parent because her, you know, tiny little humans or tiny little dwarves are running around causing a muck. And she's like every other mom out there that she's like, I'm going to bash your heads. And if you don't go get in the bed, like right now, but like, she's so beautifully and wholly her own character. Like I'm obsessed with her. Like, I love her. I want to cosplay as her. I, that would be amazing. I, I love her. I, I absolutely say go for it. I think she's wonderful as well. And you make a good point about giving her moments away from Durin. I really hope that we continue seeing her when Durin leaves. Because at the end of this episode, Durin is getting, we'll talk about this scene that triggers this, but he is going to leave with Elrond. And so Disa will not be going with them. You know, she'll be staying at home with the kids. That sounds terrible, but like, you know what I mean? Like she's not going with him in this specific uh, case. And so I hope we get to see some more of her and what she is up to um, back home, because I feel like she is a very important character in that kingdom, in that, uh, in that culture um, for the dwarves. And I, I just, I love her. And then we do get, but we do get the other big moment between Durin and his father. And so I cried. I texted you like, and I, I was like, I'm crying. <laughs> I did. Yeah, me too. I cried. It was so good I because did I'm not okay. And I, this again, I know we keep referencing in this episode, but this just proves to you how much Game of Thrones has literally impacted our ability to watch fantasy. It's so is when true. he's walking up behind his dad and his dad's just like in the chair. I'm like, if he is dead right he was now, dead. I thought he died of a heart attack. Like, yes. I was literally like, he <laughs> came to apologize. I was like, please don't be dead. I was literally fully prepared to like sob my eyes out for a completely different yes. reason. And then there was this beautiful, I don't get me wrong. Part of me actually doesn't feel like it meshed well with how we know dwarves are, but it was a beautiful scene regardless. Like, I don't think that his dad would have been as forgiving as he was just realistically based off of the personality traits we've seen of dwarves and how unbelievably stubborn they are and his dad being so much older we all know what the, it's like dealing with the stubbornness of older people as well that are significant like he's literally like the mountain he resides in you know immovable in a lot of ways but the scene in and of itself i was literally like oh yeah my dad's my best friend too like it's i get it it's okay it's so beautiful he he comes in to elron and disa and he is so upset because his dad has shut down the mining operation due to the collapsing which uh, duh, that makes sense hello and <laughs> and he's like i can't even talk to him like i'm so angry and elron <laughs> yeah i just love everything about it but both of them both him and disa are so compassionate to him and they're so elron is such a peacemaker that's the word that comes to mind and my dad personally was a peacemaker as well i'm not like i'm not i have i'm way too fiery i'm way too quick to my tongue, to be honest. Like I, I, I shoot off. I'm much more of a Durin in my reactive nature. And Elrond is, he waits, he pauses, he lets Durin get it out. He stops a second and then he goes into this little story, talks about his father and how ultimately his dad got basically made into a star. That's a big deal and can't talk to him anymore, <laughs> you know? And it's all, I mean, that's true in the lore, oh, but it's, it's basically all in service of saying, listen, I would give anything. Give up the anger to spend another moment with your father, which is what I think also helped put us in the position of, oh my God, he's in his, he's on his last legs. He's, I was literally like, dead. okay, but he's dead. Yeah. He's dead. <laughs> he like he, that's literally his yes. corpse that we're looking was, at right now. Like they, Elrond I, they, said that to set that they up. They 100% played on us uh, just with that. The directors did. worked. <laughs> I and, went on a journey and that whole five minutes, yeah. I went on a whole, I was oh, like, I'm gonna too. call my therapist. I was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> like I was not 
I was, mm, but we get again, to see very carefully constructed. He goes into his dad, right? And so the whole thinking he might be dead aside, you get to see this very stubborn and proud dwarf prince who becomes tender. He he admits that he has been overcome with anger. He apologizes and he asks his father for forgiveness. And there's there's another this is another example of great Bear McCreary's influence in the show. The score, I think, in this scene is impeccable because it is low, it is tense when his father is powerfully standing up and coming to face him, and you really feel that kingly nature of him. And you you don't know. You I think that the score puts us in a place where we like don't know if he's gonna come down on his son or what. Like I thought he was. I, I genuinely thought he was about to scold. The living daylight. <laughs> yeah. And then the score hits a different note and it gets, yeah, it gets emotional. And he says, he you know, gives him this affirmation and love and says, tells him his story about the dwarves and how, you know, the, the basically all of their knowledge and love flows through them, yada, yada. And he says, forever I am with you, my son, even in anger, sometimes in anger, most of all. There is nothing to forgive. And that's, and I like, I get teary just reading it. Like, that's when I, I like fully lost it. <laughs> that's how every parent should act towards their son, their children. It like, was amazing. It's, just, it's, it's so cathartic. And like, it is so not dwarven. And it, as we all, have, like, as we have been in, told dwarves act, right. And that is, it is such a beautiful, beautiful moment of between them, these two, these two leaders. And, and it, I, I sit there and I wonder, <sighs> like, if Durin hadn't done that, like if so, if Elrond hadn't been like, dude, just take a breath, but treasure what you, what you have, because I would give anything. Like if Elrond hadn't been there, would that just have fed into what we do know about dwarves? Is that they just, you know, they're just stubborn creatures. They're hard headed. They they latch onto how they're feeling, and that's what they're feeling. Period. And it's like I, I sit there and I think about like that influence of Elrond being significant, like despite them being a, a more hardened race of people, like that pausing moment of being like, dude, just like catalog your emotions, but also like understand he's also trying to do the best for his people. Like you're trying to propel your people forward for when you take over, but he's trying to make sure that his people are safe now. Like it's, it's a competing thing for like, you're not King yet, but you're trying to set yourself up for success. He's King now. And he's trying to make sure that there's something there for you to take when, when it's, when it's time. Yeah. And it's like, it's this beautiful merging of generations of like, if if Durin hadn't come and asked, you know, like and apologized and said he was sorry, would his father ever have said something like this? Like if they had both just accepted the fact that they were both right. mad about it and just like walked away and left it, like would either of them ever have said anything? Like it's just, yeah. it's beautiful. Like it's, I don't even care that it's not like lore or like not dwarven. It was just such a beautiful scene. Yeah, so yeah. Beautiful. I mean, I I think it can be like it, I, there's nothing that tells me it can't that can't have happened, right? I think it fits perfectly in Tolkien's style of writing and his um, whole ethos for the world. I, honestly, I, mean, I think it is beautiful. And and it ends with them they have that moment and then they get to talk. And Durin is saying Elrond wants me to go with him to Linden because he feels like I need to have this council. Something is coming. And the way I just gosh, I, I love everything about this scene. I could watch it over and over. But the way that the king looks at him and he's like, what does your gut tell you? <laughs> and he's that like, was a great, it was a great impression. He's like, 
it tells me something's wrong. Like something is going on. And he says, then you need to go and find out what it is and gives him his blessing. And I, now we get to see Durin go to the land of the elves and we get Gil-Galad back. I am almost positive, obviously, like that's the whole point. They're going to go talk to Hiking Gil-Galad. And, and I think, you know, and we have Galadriel coming back to Middle Earth. So like, I think we're on a convergence path to almost like a fellowship type style meeting. Like a council kind of thing. Where yeah. they're going to have to get together and talk about what's going on and how to proceed, which I'm, I'm all here for. And I, what I find so interesting about that, like last moment of like him being like, trust your gut more than anything else is because up until now, it's been very much like he does not trust the, the friendship that Durin has formed with Elrond. And that friendship was formed via Durin's gut. So despite him not trusting his son's friend, he trusts his son. And I think that that's like, that's the full circle of this moment that I don't think a lot of people either grasped or like latched onto is that like he doesn't trust Elrond and he may not trust Elrond's motivations, but he trusts his son to do the right thing or he trusts his son to care most about the fate of his people above all else. And so I think that there's like a beauty in that moment of him being like, not just trust your gut, but like, I trust your gut. I trust what you think because I know that like, not only have I raised you, but I know that what you care about most is making sure your people are are taken care of or making sure that like, like if something is wrong, like we have a stake in the ground as well. And so I think it's just like, it's this beautiful holistic moment because we all know dwarves are not generally the most diplomatic people. And like, they're not, you know, the, you know, the people that want to play by everybody else's rules. And so the fact that Durin's trying to bridge these gaps and whether or not his father would agree with them, like if Durin wasn't there and Elrond was confronting King Durin, like that wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have just stayed in the mountain. He wouldn't have left. So the fact that he's letting his son be his own King, I think is super important. Beautifully said. I don't, have anything to add to that because i think that's spot on and I, that's it like i don't have anything else for the whole episode really I, well i take it back I, there was one other well we, we meet we see him again one detailed line from your favorite person lord killebrimbor uh to elrond that i thought was interesting um luckily it's only just one line he says no just don't like his face your father one day he said to me one day my life would be in his son's hands and he was like, I just randomly thought about that just now. I love that because, again, we're talking like little details that hint at lore. I am not going to this time spoil it and say what eventually happens to Celebrimbor, even though I think, Aaron, you would be very glad to know because it is not good. It is one of the most gruesome. I know it's not good. Okay. It is really bad. But I think what I he's- I know of it. I'm just circling around it because I don't <laughs> want to know the details because I want to see it You want to have it. Yeah. It's going to be bad. But I, uh, I, lo I love this line because I think that he's referring to the rings of power, right? He's saying, because Elrond will eventually get one of the elven rings of power. His own, yeah. Yeah. And it just, to me, that's like a- Again, just these like small little lines of dialogue that I'm so much enjoying because they make sense in the moment or they allude to potential future pieces of history and lore that I'm aware of. I just don't know how we're going to get from A to B, which is the journey I'm enjoying on the show each week. I'm loving I just, it. I don't like the, like, oh, I just randomly thought of that. Oh, did, oh, did you? Oh, oh, did you? You just randomly thought about that? Kelly like, Brimbor can do no right. Oh, don't, don't worry. I'm just, I'm just gazing out the window longingly. Oh, you know what? You know what I just remembered? One time at a pub over drinks, your dad was like, hey, guess what? Um, I'm going to make a ring of power son, one day. Yeah, and it's my, gonna... my son's going to control your destiny. So good Good luck with that. And I just, I just, I randomly thought of that right now. I don't know why. It just popped into my head. Like, no, <laughs> no. Okay. So Too when you put it that us. way, the scene, of, I, it, I mean, maybe it doesn't, 
make a lot of sense, but I like the I line. hope people are watching these YouTube videos so they can understand my facial expressions that go with these things. But no, do not trust. Out the door, Celebrimbor. I did not mean for that to rhyme, but I stand by what I said. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any other rants for this particular episode or raves before we call it quits? Mm, I'm eager to see how much more of Numenor we get. Um, just because we know the the point is to leave Numenor, um, so I'm eager to so to see whether or not, as you know, these plans are being made to essentially enter into a new war, there's likely going to be more civil unrest, like we saw, you know, in this episode with the you know anti elf movement or whatever from that same dude that we met in the previous episodes. But like, I'm eager to see whether or not we also get people that are the exact opposite. Like we find out that there have actually been several people, you know, within Numenor that don't have a problem with the elves, but they've just kind of been like super quiet ever since, you know, what's his name got run off and is in exile in a tower somewhere that we never met, but loosely got a, an anecdote about. But like, I'm also, I'm really excited to see how Elendil's relationship develops at this point, because like, how is he going to feel about the fact that despite getting kicked out of, you know, the Sea Corps, his son now just volunteered for a mission to do the one thing that he told him he shouldn't do, which is go to, you know, the mainland or whatever. And then like to have his daughter stay, but he's going to have to go. Like it, there's, there are a lot of competing things that are happening on Numenor. So I'm eager to see how they like play that out. And like I said before, I'm eager to see Halbrand back in Middle Earth to see how he reacts to being back where his supposed quote unquote failure happened. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. And I think that the show has done a good job of setting up characters in Numenor that will stay in Numenor that will allow us to continue to experience that uh, versus just giving us the people that are going to go, you know, yeah. off to fight. Because uh, that would be really one note. Yeah, we need to yeah. we need to continue to have investment in Numenor uh, as deeper and deeper and deeper as possible in order to care when exactly its fate ultimately happens. We need to be I, and I want to be conflicted about it. I would love if the show leaves me in a place where I genuinely can see both sides. And, yeah. and that's, that's always what I kind of want from my literature, like stories like this. So, but yeah, good things stuff. Things make you question. Good stuff. What? Yeah. yeah things that make you question. Exactly. Yeah. I'm excited to hopefully get more Harfoots and Stranger next week. I like the back and forth and the, okay. So I had a whole thought about it. Like, okay. I, I am convinced that this is Gandalf. Like, okay. I'm convinced it's Gandalf. Like I just, the more, like, you know me though, I need to let something stew for a little bit before like I can fully commit to it. I I'm, I'm like, I would say 89% convinced that this is Gandalf now do at this you point because think that they're going to reveal this or do you think this think could be like a, a season one stinger yeah. reveal? Okay. That's kind of what I, think I was will, thinking. I think it will well. be towards like, maybe not the very season, like the season finale, but like maybe like closer to the end. But yeah, no, I definitely think it's going to be a season one reveal, but like I'm not, I'm like 89% sure it's Gandalf. Like it explains his, you know, fascination and or love of tiny people. It explains his, you know, like him coming in a ball of fire. Dude's also obsessed yeah, with fire all throughout the, all, all the of Lord signs of are there. I really, really want a scene where he discovers fireworks for the first time. I really want like just like a a, a moment like that, just given how we meet him in Fellowship. Mm -hmm. um, it's him on a cart. Yeah, like there's just a lot of pieces. He's in a giant gray cloak. Like there's just a lot of stuff that that literally just like the more that I think about it, I'm just like, who else could that be? Um, and it would be really weird if they did this whole series and didn't bring Gandalf into this, since we know Gandalf harkens back to so many of a lot of those like root origin stories. Oh yeah. Um, Huge but player. if that's the case, then I really hope at some point we also see Radagast, Sauron. Like I, I want oh, us to get so the bad. full picture. Yes. I also want Radagast to come back because I loved Radagast and I, too. I felt like we got, a. Uh, 
a very caricature version of him in the Hobbit movies, which I didn't hate because I, I love that he's like, I just want to like chill in the woods with my animal friends and just like smoke a bunch of tobacco yeah. and then just like and just like he like Radagast is like just that one that's just like I don't I don't want to be part of it. Like and I love that about him. It's like I love that he wasn't like power hungry or like, you know, thirsting for these things. So I hope that if it is Gandalf that we also get not origin stories, but we get to at least meet the others. Yeah, and the blue too that we've never seen. So the different yeah, all, all the, the whole yeah. council of the wizards that, yeah. that end up being there. Because they also get rings. So Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Cool. Well, uh, another good episode. Great conversation. Thank you. Uh, last but not least, where can people talk to you online if they want to find you on social media? I mean, please don't talk to me. I don't like people. Um, but like you can, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you can find me at essentially Aaron on uh, Instagram, my blog, Twitter is eHuns, I think. I think it, I can yeah. never remember. I try to, I keep trying to change my Twitter handle, but it's essentially, I want to be essentially Aaron on everything, but it's too long for Twitter apparently, so. Yeah, you want to essentially be essentially Aaron on everything. Exactly. It is too long, unfortunately. That's That sucks. Twitter, lengthen your requirements. Anyway, you can yeah, find me everywhere online at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. And you can follow the show. All of those links are in the show notes for each and every episode. So knock yourself out. We'll be back next week to talk about episode five. Excitedly. Until then, keep watching and keep Do we have the episode name for episode five yet? Lord of the Rings? I don't. No, I actually haven't really paid attention to any of the episode names. I think this one was Adar. It was really simplistic. I think so. Yeah, I think it was Adar. And he yeah. was like 10 minutes out of 60. So I'm not sure why. <laughs> yeah, I don't Maybe, even. Oh, no, no, no. It was about fathers. <gasps> that would have been a good name for the But episode. what I'm saying, but Adar is father. <gasps> oh, okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Because I think like Durin, Elrond's mention of Elrond's father. We know we talk about uh, Muriel's uh, father. Muriel's father. Like, it's fathers. I just got that. I just came up with that, like, right now on this. And see.